Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Everyday Ayurveda and Yoga. I'm Troy Snyder, a Vedic astrologer with Holly Pulu. And I'm joined here today with Myra Moon, Holly Pulu's founder, and Acharya Shunya, an author, speaker, scholar, and ordained lineage holder of Vedic sciences of Ayurvedic Yoga and Vedanta, joins us here from California today. And we're pleased to have her to talk today about disordered eating. So as we begin, welcome Myra, welcome Shinji. Thanks Troy, nice to be here. Thank you. Disordered eating. Uh, Myra, I imagine you're seeing a lot of cases today um, around this topic. Yes. We'll talk a little bit about how the population's uh, connecting here and what you're hearing. Actually, I was responding to someone this morning about it. What I'm experiencing is a great many women and men, mostly women, that have a very disturbed and difficult relationship with food. And the way we look at it is that that's a, it's a disturbed relationship with self. And especially I'm finding that when people come from their teenage years, maybe going to the, the time they go to university or, or that time frame after finishing school, there's a switch that happens. The thinking changes and the relationship perhaps wasn't good before that, but then it takes a, a turn in a way that's extremely detrimental to health. And then all kinds of behaviors come from that. So I look at it as something that is deeply rooted in the disconnection from self. Did, was you saying that was around like in preteen years or teenage years? Or? Oh, I think that it's pretty consistently begins early in life. And that can even be childhood in some cases, but especially around puberty and usually poor eating habits to start with or a lot of consumption of sugar and no consistency with food, then I find that that just leads to trying to control things. Because feeling out of control with it is, is what I find to be probably the most consistent piece. It goes to restricting or overeating and, and, and then all kinds of other behaviors that go along with that. It makes me think about our identity forming in those years. And yes. Maybe how closely it's tied to identity forming. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually take it back to, to the initial relationship with mother and how that goes. You know, I can't say that I've done studies or anything like that, but just observing how if that relationship, if that bond isn't there, then there's some disturbance right from the beginning. I was talking to somebody recently and and she said, uh, you know, she grew up in a what would appear on the outside to be, you know, a very nice upper middle class home and so forth. But the children always ate separately from the adults. So they never ever learned anything. Nothing was ever demonstrated to them. And so food became very much about just whatever emotion was going on at the moment. And the food was used to try to comfort that emotion. A lot of you know, stuffing the food in and, and then sometimes, you know, just not eating, you know, all kinds of things that go along with that. It's, it's related to our relationship with self and our relationship with others. 
Well, that's a lot of intense feelings and emotions, and I'm also none of it having to do with the foods themselves. I'm, I'm fascinated. And Shinyaji, you know, what about you? Your practice? Are, are you seeing a lot of disordered eating discussion, and is that something that you're finding out there? All the time I hear about it, and in fact, well said by a relationship with mother and child. And I think there's one more, one more mother and one more child, um, Mother Earth. And our relationship with Mother Earth and seasons, they're so disturbed. And when we look at animals and birds and, you know, other, other beings besides humans, they all somehow seem to know what to eat. They have a natural intelligence, what will suit them in what season. If it is too moist and wet, they should go and look for some drying foods. If it's very cold, they should look for some pungent grasses. There is an inherent intelligence that is intact in all, hum all beings except the human being. And I wondered if it was a punishment, but it's really part of our evolution that we've been given choice. And the first symptom of having a choice is disdaining that and forgetting about mother nature. And what has happened with the fast-paced technology and with estrangement from mother nature we forget what season it is. At one time when I was growing up in India, I grew so close to nature that for me, season was not going shopping for a new set of clothes or colors, but season was change of foods in the kitchen. And I knew the season was changing or change of spices. So the further we've become estranged from nature, further we've forgotten how to eat. And now we let magazines, we outsource our food intelligence to magazines and, and articles and short-lived research, which often collapses. For example, you know, should we be having more carbs or fats? Bad, fats are bad or fats are good. Carbs are bad or carbs are good. You know, we still, there is still no consensus. And once upon a time, ghee was so bad, a clarified butter, that it was thrown out of the kitchen even by Indians who, who used to consider ghee god. And now that ghee has once again entered the good books of uh, Moody scientists and their maverick data, everybody wants a bite of that ghee. So I think there is also tumultuous confusion, estrangement from nature, um, no understanding of seasons and no subtlety left to observe our own tastes. So I think continuing on what Myra said, I agree that our relationship with our ultimate mother has also become challenged. And then also as the seasons change, the Ayurveda texts say that when the seasons change, when it doesn't rain on time or it's too hot when it should be misty and cool, the crops change, the six, the six tastes don't remain the same. And the turmeric that grew in a climate that was disturbed will not do what the scriptures say it will do. So when everything is so disturbed, eating disorders, gut-based disorders um, are bound to proliferate. And a bunch of my students came from uh, not being able to keep their food down for physiological or psychological reasons, or it was giving all kinds of conditions. So um, 
I do wow. feel that this podcast is very timely and this topic. Let me ask you guys, you know, Myra, maybe you first. How would I identify if I'm a person that suffers from disordered eating? What are some things that I would feel or I might ask myself? And then maybe Shinya, you could uh, respond after Myra. Sure. There's a, a big variety of symptoms or behaviors that will show up. Part of it is the thinking. If you're thinking about it all the time, the, the behaviors are going to be restricting or binging, uh, bulimia. Of course, that leads to problems with either obesity or anorexia. You know, identifying those, those initial behaviors is when you sit down to a meal and your breathing gets short. Uh, you know, this is something, this is a tool that we use to help people start to be able to just digest better, you know, that it's a sacred connection that we have the opportunity for at each meal, you know, to connect with nature. And that when I do that, when I relax as I sit down, when I show some reverence and through prayer or mantra or even just an affirmation, that those things all make a difference. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm standing up and stuffing it in my mouth and that, then uh, the cells of my body are not going to be, they're not going to be ready. They're not going to be willing, actually. And when I get tense before I put the food into my mouth, which I hear many people describe that, and to be able to just start to notice that will make a difference. And uh, to be able to just take a breath and relax. And then the cells of the body will start to soften and open up. And then the agni, the digestive capacity of the cells, will start to uh, be able to do their job better. Wow. Like the self-test is also starts the remedy. I really, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. The self-diagnostic of do I feel anxious or do I feel peaceful when I sit in front of food? That, that mindful state seems to also start to bring you into the healing as well. That's, that's beautiful. And Shinji, you know, in your experience and working with your patients and clients, you know, how are they expressing their identification with, with disordered eatings? Well, I've seen the gamut. Uh, we have physical disorders, excessive gas, heartburn, um, bloating, severe pain, and then advanced conditions, of course, chronic, chronic elim- digestion impacts elimination after a while. And then we have the whole gamut of conditions there. And then psychologically, as mentioned earlier, the stress that we are carrying affects the food. And so inability to keep the food down, distaste, anorexia, bulimia, um, food obsession, compulsions. I have met people who who eat nice all day and then get up at night and eat the kitchen, you know. So hiding, shame around food. Um, everything comes up because food is, uh, beautifully, food is the self. And food is a very big component of our inner being. And when that's disturbed, you can say pretty much everything is disturbed. So I have uh, worked with countless clients and students uh, with uh, all kinds of conditions. And even if you you look at pimples or acne or hair fall or diabetes or weight gain, um, systemic disorders like blood pressure, hypertension, 
thyroid condition. In Ayurveda, you let that condition be, you come down, right, Myra? It's the mm -hmm. Agni. We have to fix the Agni first. We have to fix the Agni, and then we have to fix what you put into that Agni. So it's not mm -hmm. just about fixing one thing. You can't, unlike Western nutrition, where you fix the nutrition, now more vitamins or more vitamin D or more folic acid. We don't just fix the nutrition. What's the point of nutrition if the metabolism, the agni cannot function? So we have to look at both. And then um, in Ayurveda, there is this core principle of manokula ahara, so which literally means we should eat the food that we like, that makes us happy. So you can't simply hold your nose and swallow eight cups of water or, or, or eat karela or bitter melon just because it's good for the, you know, it's a bitter and it's good. Or, you know, you, you have to like the food too. And that's where I'm happy to see, Myra, that you are offering, you know, chef training. My husband is an Ayurveda chef. And I, I really believe in eating three, four good meals. And I, we teach that to our students too. Being happy with food kind of reduces your need to have lovers and shopping carts and things. All that Venus stuff. All that Venus yeah, stuff. all that Venus is good on a consistent basis. That's what I would say. I really like how you guys bring both sides of both the psychological and physiological aspects to what's going on here. It seems as though, you know, again, this is one of those uh, places where some a little bit of mindfulness really goes a long way, both in the psychological as well as in the physiological aspects of life. That, that's pretty key. And Shinji, you're introducing us to, for our audience here to the concept of Agni. Um, maybe we could back up just a little bit and talk about what is Agni for our audience. Maybe, Myra, you want to talk a little bit about that? And then we can run over to Shinji. Sure, yeah. It's an interesting thing because, especially as it, as it relates to people eating all day long, and the concept of Agni is something that is so, so new for most people. If we think about it as our, our ability, or the, let's say it is the energy that's available to transform anything that we consume. So that would be anything we expose our five senses to, which includes what we put in our mouth. So how I talk to people about it is that I don't have energy available to take care of what I put into my mouth then it's going to accumulate somewhere in some way that doesn't work well with the design of my body and my mind. So then I take it from there to explain to people how it might relate to their specific condition. It's something that I, I know for me, when I was learning it, it had to come back to me again and again. Uh, that it wasn't just something that, oh, it's there and I have it because I have a body, but that it's something that I need to take care of and that I need to make sure that I'm not insulting it on a regular basis so that it can't do its job. And then I do things that, to make sure that I nurture it and take care of it. And that it has to do with everything that I digest in life. You know, my ability to explore new ideas, my ability to have a sense of self-confidence. Those are the things that I, I think it's really important that we understand that it, it has an effect on everything. So taking care of it, a big part of that is about our relationship with food. Now, it sounds like Agni can be of high or low quality. Is that, do I have that right? Of high or low quality. Well, it's, it, Agni can be working well 
it can be strong. It can be too strong sometimes. It yeah. can be too hot. It can be a little slow. Okay. And that'll yeah, that's, that's what I'm wondering about. Yeah. And, and we have names for all these in Sanskrit. That, that when it's too hot, it's tikshnagni. And when it's too slow, it's mandagni. And when it's just one that I see really significantly among people where the eating gets quite disordered, which is irregular, meaning, oh, I can skip a meal. No problem. Yeah. And then I eat like a horse. You know, yeah. <laughs> I eat a lot too much. You know, the next meal. I liken the, the Agni to a campfire. If you give it a little air and a little wood and poke it, you know, take care of it, it goes, it burns. And if you throw sand on it, it smolders. And so understanding, you know, when we're making our Agni smolder, it doesn't work well. And then over time, we accumulate problems as a result of that and, and have disease in the body and in the mind. Yeah. Shinichi, Agni, what are your thoughts? I think we co might have covered the basics, definitely, of Agni, so I have nothing more to add. Maybe just this thought that when we are able to convey in pretty good time easily about Agni to people, lay people, teenagers, kids. I learned it as a kid. It's so quick and easy to assimilate. You don't have to do a PhD to understand your own, in, you know, your own body and how it works. And then you learn to, as Myra said, not insult it, but treat it well and understand what it needs, especially once you understand what kind of Agni are you born with? Because you may have a genetic Agni. And then um, your Agni can also change with age by, you, you know, and or with season. So you start noticing something changing in its requirements and its efficiency. So as I aged, I was born with pretty efficient Agni, uh, Tikshna Agni. And then as I aged, I realized that the efficiency has gone down. So then it made total sense that I'm not going to eat what I used to eat 20 years ago or even right. five years ago or even two years ago. And I will lighten both the quantity of the food I eat, the number of times I eat, and even the quality of its denseness, guruta or lightness, laguta. So I was able to be my own alchemist in that sense of what I need. So I feel that I want to add that to people, especially who are not Ayurveda students or aficionados, but just want to know, I would say Ayurveda empowers us with these quick, simple to understand uh, concepts, and then we are able to take care of it. And just the last thing I would say is that Agni means a flame. It's something hot. And the basic thing is if you're carrying a hot flame within you, and if it's already hot and it's burning food too quickly, then it's so simple and intuitive to go find cooler things to eat and more denser things for it to be engaged with. And if it is kind of like a floppy, wet flame, then you want to put some sharp things in it like ginger or garlic or cumin to pick it up. Everything makes sense once we get Agni. So, yeah, that's all I, I can say. We can go again. Fascinating. Yes, yeah. you, you made a good point. 
you know, that it really just makes sense. And I hear people talk about this a lot and that it, it always makes my heart warm when, because then, I, you know, we, we know that it's touching that deep part of us. It'll make a difference in somebody's, in, in their lives. You know, taking it back to the disordered eating, that's where that disconnect is. And so Agni is a really nice way to start to reach people who have some of that, that disordered eating going on to help them just to be able to, to empower them to see how they can control that rather than trying to control other things that maybe don't, you know, that, that aren't helpful to them. And pets know when to say no to food mm. and babies know it, but we humans like force the bottle on the baby or run after with a spoon. But intuitively we are born with that connection. So when teachers like both of us remind our students, it kind of takes them back to their birthright mm -hmm. to know when to eat and when to not eat, when to fast, when to take a walk. You know, it's so yeah. liberating actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Recently, I talked to a couple of mothers, new mothers, and they have just no idea what's happening. You know, my baby is nine months old and still waking up three times during the night and not to breastfeed. And we just talk about Agni and how the Agni has to develop and perhaps you're giving him food that he can't handle. They make the shift and the baby is great. I, I'm always enamored by the ability of the human being to heal if we get out of the way, if we take away the, the, the cause, which is, is uh, something we always look to first. Very different approach for, for many people. And I think with healing disordered eating, sometimes we have to go there very gently. And we need to start to approach the layers of us as human beings and you know what am I willing to look at before I can come to that root cause. A couple of things I really uh, enjoyed hearing that you guys said. One is when you began talking about Agni, especially Shunaji, it creates a little space to work with Agni instead of being a servant to Agni. The way that you talked about it allowed me to think about it in a way that it is changing, maybe sometimes faster or slower than the rest of me is changing. But the attunement to the Agni and its ebbs and flows likely is, is the remedy, likely is, is the deepening of the connection. And then the, the second thing that comes to mind is the strongly held food belief systems. I'm wondering how those conflict with what the uh, development of our own internal agony is. Like you were saying, um, the kinds of foods that serve our digestive system change over our lifetime. Well, if we have closely held belief systems from when we were a child that we only eat these things or we don't eat that, those things, I imagine those would conflict with what might be what our Agni is craving at the time. If we believe we're a meat and potatoes person, because we were told we're a meat and potatoes person, but our Agni craves cauliflower, well, that could be a conflict you know, from belief system to physiology. So those things come to mind in the dialogue as well, how we might deal with the approach, I guess, or the mindfulness to not get uh, entangled in our own beliefs, right? 
One thing I think about that is what I've observed is that when Agni is, is healing or coming into balance or coming into its own, that, that it doesn't scream at us. It will just be persistently present. Our cravings and our attachments, which I think you were referring to, you know, that, that they tend to scream at us. They tend to be very loud and overpowering. There's a there's an attunement that needs to take place to start to listen to that more subtle information that's coming through. And I think that concept of cause and effect, that principle that's present in nature, is what I find to be so empowering in all this, that I just start to understand, I take an action and I have a result from that action. Sometimes what I want, sometimes what I don't want. And to actually take responsibility for what's happening there, I think is one of the big things that makes a difference in our ability to be able to sense our Agni and to be able to get to know it on a deeper level. What do I do with all the really cool sounding diets that come across my email, you know, the intuitive eating or the Trump 2020 or whatever cool fad diet that might come around. What do I, what do, I do with all this? I personally feel that we can take up any diet because the principles of Ayurveda are not Indian or Hindu. They are universal. And you can take heaviness, lightness, hotness, coldness, thickness, lightness, hard, harder, to, takes longer to digest, takes easy time to digest, and apply it on any diet and see if that works for you. So the invitation to understand Ayurveda concept of right eating, right cooking is to understand its principles. So actually from that perspective, Ayurveda is not a diet. Ayurveda is a wisdom. And what other diets have is a cookie cutter approach where they take it and they put it onto entire humanity. Whereas Ayurveda says, Understand you, understand your gut, understand your constitution, your disturbance, your, if you are, if you like sweet taste over bitter, or you like bitter a lot, why do you like it? Which dosha, which energy has become imbalanced? What's going on? So it makes you do introspection. And I think once somebody has understood the Ayurveda principles of right eating, because I have international students, they can go back and go back to their Japanese cuisine or Native American and Indian cuisine. I have had so many Indian students who are like shocked after studying Ayurveda because Ayurveda cuisine has nothing to do with Indian cuisine. The average right. Indian cuisine yeah. in the average Indian home is contrary to the principles yeah. of Ayurveda. So Ayurvedic diet is scientific diet, informed process of eating, and it's using a lot of physics to understand that, okay, my Agni is dull right now. So I'm going to add a few more pungent bitter things and heat up the temperature of my food. This is not a good time to have, you know, ice cream. Whereas even ice cream is not a bad thing in Ayurveda. If your house is on fire, what do you need? You need ice cream. So this science can work for every diet. So before you get on one, I always say, get with the physics of eating. Yeah. yeah. I like um, how this reinforms our, the title of our talk today too, 
what I hear you saying, Trina G, is that Ayurveda is a system of organized eating versus the disorganized eating that we might have been doing in the past. So it feels very clear there. I appreciate that. It, Myra, anything you'd like to add? So I was just nodding my head and saying yes to what you were saying. But you mentioned, Troy, the in, intuitive eating. And, you know, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. and, and essentially, that's what we're talking about, except that it's taken up in, in the presence of imbalanced dosha, then it becomes something that's, that can be quite harmful and create more imbalance. So I just wanted to, to mention that because what Shinjaji was talking about, and, and, and I think what we've all been talking about, is that we, we need to come back to the nature of ourself, you know, to, and, that, and that includes our intuitions. But when my mind is running all over the place with excess vata dosha, then I'm not going to hear that correctly. And I think that's one of the beauties then of Ayurveda because it gives us the tools to learn how to bring balance to the mind, to the body, and our connection to our spiritual self. The story you guys are telling, it sounds a lot like that in, at the time of birth, we'll say, we start off with this almost a pure organized eating system. But it seems like right away we start to take on what I would call traumas. And as though you describe the, the, the kind of, some of us have this feeling of either, you know, anxiety when we sit in front of food, that seems almost like a PTSD response where we're being re-traumatized over and over every time we sit in front of food. And mm -hmm. so what I'm gathering here is that this work is much the same as all other healing work, which is to try to restore our organization, our organized self, um, try to restore our harmonized self and our peaceful self, um, and to... Uh, try to reduce the re-traumatization of self that we experience over and over um, by putting ourselves into circumstances which don't allow us to find these, you know, kind of peaceful, serene, open environments to enjoy food and uh, essentially develop the vitality from the food that we are we're trying to consume. So, I, you know, I hear that in both of your stories, really, and I can appreciate that uh, in my own experience, too. So, you know... I guess, over and all, we began by thinking about that these disorders are on the rise. And, uh, and I, would, I would assume that you guys both would feel that is true, that this is something on the rise. Um, do, you know, do you think that there's uh, like general symptoms we would think about or consider or be mindful of? Is, though um, we're not just talking about our individual self, uh, you know, I'm thinking about practices around food that we might all employ that provide stronger, deeper, more meaningful relationships or reduce the kind of food traumas that we might be experiencing? Are there general things that we can all do? And I, I'll, I can, I'll, I'll start with that. Where to start is the question. <laughs> but I think as, as people look at their relationship with food, I think we can just start with having it be something that's the foundation of our living. Most people think of it as just something I have to fit in around all my activities. And I really encourage people to start to think of it in the opposite, where I'm, I'm, I need to, to nourish myself on a daily basis. I'll lay that framework how does the rest of my life flow with that? Now, certainly, it doesn't mean you can't be flexible, of course, but it's the thinking, I think, that uh, to start to look at that, you know, how can I uh, have a different attitude about it and about myself? 
because unlike we get in such a hurry, we're rushing to do as many activities as we possibly can, as much work as we possibly can. And if I do more, then you know, eventually we have to get back to what is at the root of all of that? Well, you know, there's, there's usually fear at the root of that. I, perhaps I'm talking about it at a, at a higher level here, but it really comes back to, you know, am I, did I come here uh, to, to earth and in this human experience to run and run and run and run and get somewhere? Or did I come here to have the experience of living? And so I, I think it's important to go back to that and say, what am I doing? At least this was something that was very helpful for me and I find it to be helpful with, with my clients. And this, take a look at that bigger picture and then that gives us the ability to start to come down to you know what am i doing in my daily life and how can i see other possibilities of how to live and our environment now is is forcing that on us to some degree which i i talked to many many people who are saying you know i really like what's happened here because i'm staying home and my relationship with my partner has gotten better in that and sometimes even the relationship with children are improving too, which is an opportunity. So taking a look at how do I view my life, I think is also one place to start. And there are many other things too. You know, it sounds a lot like the relationship with food is so critical that if it breaks down in a severe way, I might be thinking and ruminating so much about my food relationship that I forget about my core dharma or what I might be here to do. Um, and maybe that includes like caring for others or, or my significant loved ones or those kinds of things. So that, that seems, that seems worrisome. And I wonder this relationship, you know, for me, something is about food as fuel for my organism, which is different from experience that feeds my cravings and my hunger and start to be mindful about what my hunger is. And then here I'm talking about food and, um, my little one next to me really enjoys food. <laughs> He's hungry right now. I'll be right back. Okay. Do we want to talk a little bit about ego and body image and some of the more popular discussions that come up in, in topics around food today? Maybe we could even think about some scaras and how those might impact the realm of ego and what, what our image of ourselves is. You know, I'm wondering what your thoughts are related to the disorganized eating behaviors as though they impact our self-image and, and how intricate the relationship between self-image and eating might be. Yeah, I mean, the body composes our sthula sharira, our, our, our body, and our image is totally tied up to it. But then I always remind seekers that there's this ancient Vedic saying, annam hi somya manaha, which means annam, food, it, the mind is nothing but food. So I tell them that eat your way to self-esteem, make decisions, make sankalpas, make choices, eat in a self-valuing way, and that's going to show up as a mind that values itself. When you trash your body with trashy food and don't make good choices or eat bad food despite knowing that it's hurting you, you are not just hurting your body, but you wake up, your spine wakes up weaker. You are emotionally stunted every day of self-sabotage and self-harm. And food, because annam is manaha, annam is the mind, 
when you eat, when you cook, from beginning with giving yourself permission to spend money. Organic food is not necessarily cheap. Growing food in your backyard is time consuming. So none of this is easy, like going to the supermarket. But when you give yourself permission that you deserve it, like the God and goddess that you are, you spend money on the best food, you cook for you, take the time, you let phone calls wait, emails wait, Insta and Twitter wait, and you cook for yourself, you lay out the table, you eat the food, and, you, and you're so subtle, you're quietly eating it so you know when you're done. And Ayurveda provides those little tips of, you know, when do you know you are done? And it says, you should walk away when there is no pressure in the stomach. You know, you should walk away when your heart doesn't feel heavy. You should walk away when the sides of your chest don't feel pushed. You should walk away when your abdomen doesn't need to bloat. You should walk away when you don't feel sleepy right afterwards. You should walk away when you don't have pathological thirst afterwards. And you should walk away when you're feeling happy. So these are some rules from Charak Samhita and ancient texts. Walk away. And when you walk away, you walk towards your own taller self, truer self, happier self. So I've had, you know, I'm sure Myra has had to, we've all had people with like quite advanced eating disorders to the point where they were hurting themselves psychologically and every other way. And their self-esteem was eroded. And I helped pay to the food and develop a new a new relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps. I, I don't think I can say I can fix it, but I definitely have ideas that have allowed people to bring themselves into more wholeness. But food, I eat very particularly, you know, because I'm a full-time writer and a teacher, and I know the impact of one meal, one meal on me, not just a few hours later, but 30 days it stays in my body. This is Ayurveda biochemistry. And on the 30th day, it will become ojas, my immunity. So I don't like to be, once you know the science, you want to be, you want to blossom. But I want to say I did go through a dark time in my life. And my, my relationship broke down, my marriage broke down. I was it was not something normal in my kind of family. You know, you get married for seven lifetimes in my culture. And it was not something I expected in my own life to happen to me. I don't know if I created it or they created it or it was karma, but it's all, you know, everything. And I ate myself to sickness. So I'm not talking from a pulpit. I'm talking from a person who ruined their health. (laughs) had bronchitis, had asthma, uh, was several sizes heavier. I don't mind being a kapha dominant woman who's not super slim, but I was unhealthily, you know, carrying weight. I've been there. And then I had this moment where it was just me and my darkness. And then I said, I'm done. So I can speak from the power of I don't know if I wanted my body back or I wanted my self-worth back. <laughs> but I think they're connected and the self-worth comes from good food. So I, I've i come back. This happened many years ago, like more than two decades ago. But 
I brought myself back meal after meal, you know. Your experience shines through, though, decades ago or not. Uh, you're right here with us, so thank you. Yeah. Thanks for thank sharing you. that. And it really is a, it's a, it's a step-by-step process for, for all of us. I remember very early on my yoga teacher saying to me, she, she said, she tasted my cooking, and I, I never thought of cooking as being anything. I, I, I was very practical and simple about it. And then she said, oh, she said, your cooking is good. And that, and, you know, I realized at that point that I, that, that it, it was something that I had started putting love into, but partly because honestly it was because it was all I ever thought about <laughs> in my, before I came to yoga and Ayurveda, you know, that I, I thought it was constant. I overate every time I ate. So you were talking about all the, all the things from the text. And I was ticking off all the ones that I was doing before. And then, and then when I started to learn the principles of Ayurveda, I was able to start to, to, to be able to change some of that. But it was a gradual process uh, for me, for sure. But there came a point where there was freedom. And that freedom had everything to do with, with my connection to myself. It, it came with some spiritual devotion. I, I also look at it connecting to Agni because I'd had Agni, weak Agni all my life too. And to stop insulting it made such a difference. Our, our ability to heal is, is such a powerful part of being human. And I experienced it and I, I love to watch other people experience it when they do something and it makes a change in the result so that we make an internal decision and then the body starts to follow and it's, and it starts changing and healing. And, and this is, I think the, the magic you were talking about, uh, Troy, that just makes life worth living. You know, in Ayurveda, we, do, we have that opportunity, like that Shinjaji, that we have it every day, every meal, every time we make choices, then we can experience the beauty of life. And that's, a, and, and that's something I, I, I work on on a daily basis to do this and encourage people to, because it is. For me, though, it's just that I have to draw that mind back. It's like, no, no, we're right here right now. Be there. And then I am there, and just like the opportunity to, to be with you all today and have this conversation. Wow, this is incredible. Long roads, long roads. Yeah. And, and, you know, filled with uh, coming to the life, right? So uh, yeah. both your stories uh, provide me a lighter sense of, of you know, what's out there, what, what to look for. So I, I'm honored and I appreciate that for sure. I wanted to mention also about related to our topic for today is the whole perfectionism thing. You know, I didn't ever think of myself as a perfectionist. But as I look back, there's a lot of that energy, a lot of that kind of thinking going on. And I find it to be really common with people today. I thought it made me strong. I thought it meant that I was committed to things and, and things like that. I think one of the most important things for people these days in healing 
is to, to begin to let go of that perfectionism and to start to recognize the role of the ego or the hamkara in that, that it, it, it's not serving us in that place and that we're all perfectly imperfect. And I was thinking about it because we all have bumps in the road and I've been around the planet long enough now to have had quite a few of them. Happily, they get smaller as I continue with Ayurveda and yoga, but it's there and it's okay. It's okay. There's forgiveness and there's healing. And I think that's a really important thing related to our topic. And maybe there's a way to share the bumps uh, in fashions that don't feel frightening or feel for, for us. You know, like you said, we're, you know, we're, we're all just human beings. So some of those bumps can be pretty funny stories if shared with the right tones and enlightenment. They're not, they're not all tears and, and yeah. fears. So mm-hmm. I, I can appreciate that too. And it helps, it helps us all know that we're not alone, you know, that, yeah. that we're not the only one that's having that kind of a problem or with our thinking and, and otherwise. Sovereign Self, Shiniji, coming out in December. Uh, pre-order available now. Anything you want to preview uh, seems very relevant to everything we're talking about today. Tell us about the world's most timely novel. Well, it's actually nonfiction. It is the teachings of the Vedas, Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita, really the the healing of the mind. And apparently we all have a beautiful self waiting for us. It's healthy, it's shining, it's wise, it's intuitively connected to Divine Mother, Divine Father. But we are unaware of it in a day-to-day basis because we are cluttered with, our mind is cluttered with doubts and beliefs and miseries and projections of its own creation. And the body is cluttered with undigested food residue known as toxins. So we have the light, but we're looking for it outside us. So along with being an Ayurveda teacher, I'm also a teacher of the teachings of the spiritual tradition of Ayurveda, the Bhagavad Gita, the Veda. So this is my book where uh, I have presented in great systematic detail what a seeker can do if they want to really grab the light within them and they want to address it by first addressing the false beliefs. So it was my journey, but it was also my education and I put it two together and this book is coming out by the same publisher of my former book, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, which is Sounds True. Delighted that you brought it up. Thank you. Well, thanks. I'll be looking forward to giving you a read. Thank you very much. Anything else, uh, Myra? We have our Agni Therapy Program for healing digestive issues, but it's also a uh, a great way to create a new foundation for living, bringing the mind and the body together to work with the spirit in the healing process. And then uh, for those who are having a little more challenge in their relationship with food, we have a 12-week program coming out at the end of February, Healing Your Relationship with Food. Uh, It's also good for those with uh, disordered eating. So you can learn more about Agni Therapy on our website, halepule.com. And stay tuned on our social media, Instagram and Facebook, uh, for more information about healing your relationship with food. Ladies, thank you very much for your time today. Yes. Look forward to our next meetings. Yeah. It's good yeah. to see you all. Thank you, Shinjaji. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Mara. Thank you, Troy. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye.
In Ayurveda, we understand that we each have a unique constitution. Halipuli's tridoshic approach is ideal for families and supports multiple constitutions. You can cultivate sattva in cooking, knowing that you're making meals that support everyone's constitution. Subtle adjustments may be required, but it doesn't need to be a stress point. To learn our tridoshic approach to create nourishing meals, Join simple Ayurvedic cooking with Halipule. Their recipes are easy, delicious, and will leave you feeling energized. And the link to join is in our show notes.